You're listening to The Over 50 Entrepreneur, the podcast that's dedicated to the business builders who are only getting started when most are winding down. This is the place to discover how to create more freedom from your business while growing the value of your business. Now here's your host, Rick Hadrava. Hi guys, this is Rick Hadrava again with another edition of the Over 50 Entrepreneur Podcast. Hey listen, can't tell you how grateful I am that you've chosen to take a listen to this show today. Hopefully this isn't the first time, but if it is, thank you so much. Make sure to check us out on iTunes, Spotify, and all the other areas where you get podcasts. And if you like the show, give us a rating. You know, I, I came across a book and one of the things in my work with business owners is I'm constantly reading, I'm constantly thinking about things. And I found this book a few months ago. And I have to tell you, I read the first chapter and I immediately went into my wife uh, and said, hey, you've got to read this book. You've got to read this book. And the deeper I, I, I got into this book, the more I was enamored with what was going on. And Basically, as, as a parent of two kids, you know, academics are important to us today. We see in the news what's been going on, you know, with, with, with some of the scandals that we've seen. And it's no surprise that there's a lot of pressure today academically. Also, uh, on our athletics. I mean, you know, when I was a kid growing up, it was rec ball at the Y and high school ball meant something a whole lot different. Uh, today, my kids are in some activity every day. There's always a club sport. There's coaching lessons. And I I joke because I told my wife when we first started out on that path that we weren't going to be those parents. And yet, it just kind of seems to unfold. So this book uh, was written by a gentleman that we have as our guest today, Rich Carlgard. It's called Late Bloomers, The Power of Patience in a world obsessed with early achievement. And I think it's just a timely book that, you know, I think it's one of those topics that we're all maybe thinking about. We don't talk about it very often. And I don't know that we, we've thought about a solution to it. And that's really what got me thinking um, as I decided to reach out to Rich and see if he'd be kind enough to be on our show. So before we bring Rich to the to the show today, let me give you just a little background on Rich. Rich Carlgard is an American journalist best-selling author, award-winning entrepreneur, and speaker. He was named publisher of Forbes magazine in 1998 and has written three books, Life 2.0, How People Across America Are Transforming Their Lives by Finding the Where, the where of Their Happiness, uh, which made the Wall Street Journal's business bestseller, list, excuse me, The Soft Edge, Where Great Companies Find Lasting Success, and this book, Late Bloomers, The Power of Patience in a World Obsessed with Early Achievements. I think what I like about Rich is while he resides in California today, uh, he's from North Dakota, Bismarck, North Dakota, and his own journey has been one that I think will resonate with our audience. So without further ado, let me welcome to the Over 50 Entrepreneur Podcast, Rich Carl Gard, welcome to Thank the show. Thank you, Rick. It's a, ple- yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. I'll just get right into it. So you wrote this latest book, Late Bloomers. What was the reason that you chose to write this book? Well, Late Bloomers is a different kind of a book for me. Normally what I write about, both at Forbes and what I speak about at business events, is the intersection of the economy, financial markets, and the accelerating rate of digital evolution. Because you, you look out there and you, 
you see this accelerating rate of digital evolution is it's almost throwing out many rules of the economy and how we value companies today. And it's been very beneficial for certain parts of the United States and less beneficial for others. Late Bloomers is a different kind of a book for me. And I've always identified as a late bloomer. I was one of those young adults that couldn't get his act together until his late 20s at age 25. Despite having graduated from a good university, I was still incapable of holding a job beyond night watchman and dishwasher, for example. And I always wondered whether that would be a story worth telling and in a way that people would get used out of it if, if, if they weren't blooming early or if their kids weren't blooming early. And um, what really made me decide to do this book was seeing a lot of frustration and misery and even anxiety and depression all along the age spectrum that, that uh, teens in America today aren't in good shape by and large. I think we all know that higher rates of anxiety and depression. And when you talk to the kids, they will describe these pressures that they, they, they weren't, that maybe kids in the past were feeling pressures to do not just well, but super well, super well enough to get into really good colleges. You find a lot of young adults that feel stuck, that they haven't bloomed. And then you feel, see a lot of people in middle age in their 40s and 50s who wonder whether time has passed them by, particularly in this economy where technology is leaving its fingerprints on everything, where if you don't know how to code or you don't know how the internet works or internet marketing works, that somehow you're going to be left behind. So I wanted to write a book that would lay out what's really going on in neuroscience and psychology and how science makes it very clear that we're capable of continual learning and continual blossoming throughout our lives. So if we didn't do super well in grades or the SAT scores when we were 16 years old, it isn't over for us. Or if we reach a plateau or even begin to go downhill in our careers because we've been laid off in our 40s, it isn't over for us. We can begin a new entrepreneurial path in our 50s. And there are reasons neurologically why we can do that. And there are some really great, um, exciting examples of people who've gone out there and done that. Well, let, let's go back and highlight um, a few of the points that you've made about early achievement, right? Because you, you talk about it from athletics to to getting into the right school. And, you know, you you kind of softly uh, made reference to your school and you're, you're a Stanford graduate, right? And, and this late bloomer. But where is the pressure today, you know, for these kids? Um, and what what what's happening as a result of some of this pressure? Well, particularly in larger communities, let's say Oklahoma City and above, you've got in the more affluent areas in the affluent schools, whether they're public or private, we've, as a society, decided to make an enormous bet on how well kids are doing on their standardized tests and their grades, and not just grades, but grades in advanced placement courses. And so the idea is that, you know, you get, you spend time studying, you spend time with private tutors, and all to get the best SAT possible, and the best, the highest grades possible, so you can get into a 
university that presumably will give you a head start in whatever you're going to do. Well, that's fine for a certain minority of kids who happen to be really good at taking standardized tests and happen to be really good at sitting still in the classroom and and then sitting still and focusing on uh, over hours and hours of homework. But we know that not all kids and not, you know, the majority of kids are the opposite. They're not built that way. And so it's kind of foolish that we're betting so much on a narrow sliver of, of young people and, and ignoring um, the capabilities and the gifts that, that the rest have. Imagine, you know, this year, if the coronavirus doesn't wipe it out, we'll see later in the summer, the 2020 Summer Olympics in Tokyo. And I always like the opening day ceremonies. I love watching the U.S. team walk around the track. Somebody's holding the flag. And then when you look at the team members, you see an extraordinary variety of human beings. You see 350-pound shot putters. You see 90-pound female gymnasts. You see tall basketball players. You see short wrestlers. You see broad-shouldered swimmers. You see narrow-shouldered long-distance runners. You see this variety of athletic athletic gifts all on one team and under one flag. Now, that kind of is a great metaphor for how we, as a society, people have different gifts. And not everybody has gifts to sit down and take standardized tests and that kind of stuff. So it, it would be like telling a long-distance runner, a marathon runner, we're going to give you one test to see whether you belong on the U.S. Olympic team. And that test is how fast you run the 100-meter dash. Well, if you're a marathon runner, you're, you're going to be average at best. You might be below average. If you're a 350-pound shot putter, you might be really good after five meters or 10 meters. And then you're going to wear out and you're going to you know, collapse in a heap after 50 meters. So you know, th- think about the equivalent of what we're doing to students today. We're saying just these very narrow ways we're going to measure excellence. And we do the same thing in sports. You can't, you know, we've, we're, we're getting kids to specialize in, in a sport earlier than they should really specialize. So I wanted to write this book and say, is that even valid way to look at human development? And it's not. In fact, the opposite's true. We need to be patient. We need to really take some time to discover what our gifts and our true motivations are. And, you know, one kid might have extraordinary gifts in carpentry and true motivations in that field. And if they go to a school where there's no uh, skilled trades program and they've never been around carpentry and they don't even know that they have this latent gift of being a great carpenter, they'll never find out. All they'll know is that they're, is that they're a lousy student because they can't sit still. And I think that's just a, that's just a counterproductive way of looking at, at human beings and their infinite capacities to develop throughout lives. And then I think in America, you know, we've always fancied ourselves as this, we've always prized youth and that's okay. You know, certainly sports rewards youth, um, uh, popular music rewards, mostly youth. But I think we've taken that idea and, and extended it to everything that, that, for example, where I live in Silicon Valley, Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook once said, that nobody does good work over the age of 30. Well, that's preposterous. You'll note that Zuckerberg, who's now 33 years old, no longer says that. But the whole idea is preposterous. 
I mean, you look at enterprise software, for example. Um, Fred Luddy started a company called ServiceNow the week before his 50th birthday. The company has about a $40 billion market value today. Um, Tom Siebel started his first company, Siebel Systems, in his late 40s in the 90s, in the 1990s, right at around age 50, actually. And now today, at age 67, he's, he's leading one of the uh, top enterprise AI companies, companies that do broad-scale AI software for oil and gas companies, for transportation companies, you know, real in-the-guts stuff. So there, as we look at the human and how we develop and how our brain develops, we'll see that we're much better at things in our 50s, at certain things in our 50s than we were in our 20s. And the things that we lose, um, you know, people in their 20s, there's no question about it. They have really rapid firing synapses. They're, they have great short-term memories. And we lose a little bit of that as we get older. But, um, but we pick up so many other things, our ability to lead teams, our ability to see the big picture that we didn't have in our, in our 20s. And what we lose, we lose so gradually it really doesn't make that much difference. So rapid cognitive processing speed, for example, we lose about 0.2% a year uh, after our peak in our early 20s. That's not that much. Well, you know, you, you bring up a great point. And what I can't help as I'm listening to you, Rich, is wondering about things like burnout for these young people. And, you know, at, at the end of the day, you know, is, is the prize getting to that college where the connections are made or is the education that much better that it's going to help them? You know, there's no guarantee that that's going to translate itself into success for them financially or however they define it. And, you know, so I wonder about burnout, you know, as, as it goes through, but you make a good point, you know, at 50, I think there's a little more wisdom. You've got experience. Uh, Some of the things that used to be concerns for you are no longer there. How do you, we could spend a lot of time talking about the younger folks and and all that. And I would I would highly recommend that if people are interested in learning more, that they get a copy of your book uh, because it does a great job. But what what I'm interested in is you know that 40, 50, 60 year old entrepreneur who maybe you know spent a career in corporate and like you said they see things differently. They 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 have something that they're passionate about. How do they take that late bloomer kind of approach, but yet when, when I read or when I hear you talk about economy, financial, and digital evolution, let's, let's be honest, a lot of 50-year-olds today, they're, they're a little behind the curve on that stuff. Yeah, that can be true, and you don't want to let yourself too, fall too far behind the curve, certainly in terms of the broad trends. It, it's, it behooves everyone at every age to do that. Now, will you be a great programmer in your in your 50s? Probably not, because you're competing against younger people who are naturally good at programming software under a time pressure. You know, one of the things that, that we see over the course of our lives is that we become better, uh, slower thinkers, what Daniel Kahneman wrote about when he talked about the difference between fast thinking and slow thinking. Slow thinking is more in the area of wisdom. It's stepping back and seeing the big picture. So if you think in terms of let's move it from software to money management, 
If you're going to be in the money management field, well, if you're going to be a high-frequency trader, for example, that might favor the younger person because high-frequency trading is so technology-driven, and being at the leading edge of that is an enormous advantage. On the other hand, being somebody who can manage a portfolio um, for, for people, real money for real people, and having the wisdom and the experience to see what kind of a market are we in? How does this compare to past markets? What are the pitfalls? You need some historical perspective. And so and I would encourage anybody who wants to be an entrepreneur at age 50 is to imagine that your brain is evolving and you want to, you know, as Wayne Gretzky, the famous hockey player said, I, I don't shoot the puck uh, where, where, you know, I imagine where it's going where it's going, uh, yeah. where it's going to go, you know, half second from now, um, how the, how the whole, everybody will, all the players will be on where they'll be on the rink. And that's kind of what we need to think about is that, well, okay, I was pretty good at doing this in my twenties and thirties. Do I really want to recapture that and try to be good at that again? And maybe that's, you know, that can be kind of a, a frustrating quest to recapture our youth. And that's not, what we should be thinking about. We should be thinking about our evolving abilities. You know, can we hire good young people? Can we lead teams? Can we motivate teams? Um, or going into more consultative kinds of um, startup enterprises where you can use complex sales, where you're, you really have to get down and after a long conversation with a client and, 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 and many hours doing research, you come up with a complicated solution um, because it can't be a simple solution. And you, and you work, you work these things out in a consultative way that really favors somebody of middle age and beyond because they've seen the history of, of their industry. They've, they've worked with people. They can hear between the lines. You become better listeners, you know, when you get older. So that's what I say. It's really, it's really good to think about how you're evolving you know, when I wrote Late Bloomers, I, I shortly, shortly discovered that the people who were most enthusiastic about the book were people in their 40s and 50s because <laughs> they were thinking about two things. They were thinking about their, they were thinking about the, the kids that they have that were teens or young adults that hadn't bloomed yet. They seemed like they were falling behind or they were stuck or they were depressed or whatever it was. Uh, they had a kid living in the basement who didn't want to go out and be an adult. But they were thinking about their own careers, too, both mothers and fathers and a lot of women, um, because, you know, traditionally in, in our country, women make the sacrifices for the family while men go out and earn the money. I mean, you can't deny that, that is still largely true. Even in two working households, it's m more often than not. It's the woman who's made the sacrifices to her career. And now 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 imagine if they're empty nesters. They're also thinking about how am I going to reboot my own career too? And with a big hole in your resume, whether you felt you were a natural entrepreneur or not, sometimes the entrepreneurial route is the best route available to you because if you're 50 years old and you have a gap in your resume and you're sitting down with some younger person in a job interview, that, gets, that can be frankly hard. And so thinking about, well, okay, well, I'm going to go out and do something on my own here. And be in charge of, uh, you know, I'm going to define the product or service I offer and the kinds of clients that I want to have and the kind of corporate culture that I want to have. 
a lot of a lot of people who didn't see themselves as entrepreneurs can find out that they can be really good entrepreneurs. A lot of times what <clears throat> stops an entrepreneur from becoming an entrepreneur, a successful one, is you can, you, can, you can easily identify two or three things. One is to be an entrepreneur, you, know, you have to admit that you're in sales. I mean, you have to go out and sell your product or service. You have to go out and sell uh, sell people on their motivation on you know light their motivation to come and work for you that's kind of sales well it turns out most people are much better at sales than they think they are if they're really passionate about what they're doing and they're not thinking that they're selling but but they're talking about why they're so passionate about what they're doing they discover they can be really good salespeople. But, but a lot of, but that often trips people up because they think they're not going to be good at that. Or another one is, is that they, they need a partner of some kind, that kind of person who can do the things that they can't do well, freeing them up to do the things that they can do well. And particularly, I think for the older entrepreneurs, that partner may be younger. That partner may, may be the one who really understands how to market the product or service on the internet. You know, I'm, I'm glad you went down that road because I'm sitting here thinking we've got this new technology today, the internet, right? And um, it's just like podcasting. Let's be honest, this platform didn't exist just a little bit ago. It does now and it gets traction. It takes time. But if you, I don't know if you've got the best rhubarb dessert recipes and you want to show how to garden that, how to cultivate it, how to put it together you have a platform today online and, and you're right. You, maybe you figure out how to do that yourself or, you know, I, I've recently hired a virtual assistant in some of the work that we're doing because I'm, I'm getting a little bit to a point where I need that help. Those things exist today that, and, and quite frankly, they didn't before. So Rich, I'm, I'm curious with your background and experience, um, what advice would you give an entrepreneur, like you said it, right? Maybe they have a gap, uh, but maybe they just don't want to work for anybody, you know, the second phase of their life and they have this interest um, or they have this wisdom that they think they can share. And I see that a lot where, where people, are, you know, they think, oh, people already know this, but it's astounding to me in this information economy. And that's really what we're talking about is, is your ability to share what you're really passionate about and, and it seems to collect its own audience. Um, so I'm just curious if you agree with that or if, if you think that's oversold today um, in the marketplace. Well, I think it, um, even if it's oversold in the marketplace as an idea, doesn't make it unimportant. Um, you still have to find that place where you're passionate but motivated too. I mean, motivated to the point that you'll sacrifice for your passion. I also think you should look back at what you've done and what really got you excited and look at that honestly and, and think about moving into what a consultant might call an adjacent space. Oh, I've seen people make the mistake where they, they're 50 years old, um, they realize their career has plateaued at their company uh, and, and they don't know what to do. And so they decide to be an entrepreneur and then they go out and do something completely different where they are really at a disadvantage because they don't know the industry they're going into. 
And they're like the, you know, it's like the old poker saying, if you don't know who the sucker at the table is, the sucker is you. So they'll <laughs> well, go into, they'll go into some restaurant franchising business, not knowing what it really takes. I mean, if you're going to go into the restaurant franchising industry, it's probably really helpful, right? If you, that you've spent some time in the restaurant industry or that you understand how franchising works. Because if you only have one franchise in a national chain, you basically bought yourself an 80 hour a week job, right? I mean, the only, yes. the, the only way the economics are going to work for most franchising opportunity is that you have quite a number of franchises right off the bat. So then you're, then you're, then you're more of a manager rather than a short order cook or somebody cleaning up the bathroom. I can't tell you, it breaks my heart. I'll walk into a, a Quiznos or some, you know, some place like that. And I'll see a, I'll see a 55 year old person who looks, you know, it looks educated and looks like they came from the corporate world. And now they're, you know, now they're slinging sandwiches. Well, maybe that, that might bring them joy. I don't want to put that down, but you have to know that the, you, you're going to have to go through that. Or I've seen people get into, um, multi-level marketing opportunities and 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 it's really been costly they didn't understand how the game was played and that's not to run down all multi-level marketing opportunities but there are a lot of them out there that are not as transparent as maybe the entrepreneur had imagined that they would be and how far they uh, and just how far they are down in the in the chain of commission so there you have to go into things wide with your eyes wide open. And if you've accumulated two decades worth of experience in the corporate world, don't go too far from that. I mean, now figure out how you're going to build a business around it and to add value on your own and make yourself uh, stand out and be unique. I love, I love that advice. And I think um, so many people, they'll have a passion that has nothing to do with what they've done for 20 years and they'll walk out abruptly and go follow this. And then they're back doing something usually not in a good position when, when that doesn't work itself out. But so that brings up a question that I have for you and it, and it kind of circles back to education. Um, you know, Mike Rowe of dirty jobs fame, he is a big proponent of more technical and trade schools and apprenticeship type things. And I'm sitting here listening to you talk about the older generation. Um, but, you know, what are your thoughts on that for maybe some of these these kids that, you know, haven't found their pathway yet? They think they have interest. Do you advocate for that or, or what, are you, what are your thoughts? Oh, I'm a strong. Uh, first of all, I'm a huge fan of Mike Rowe. Back a few weeks ago, I wrote a column for Forbes.com urging Mike Rowe to run for governor of California in 2020. And, you do a great um, job. He, he doesn't seem like a California guy, right? You know, he's right. like a more of an Oklahoma guy than a California guy, but, but he is from California. It's the dirty, it's the dirty jobs reputation that gives him more of that American heartland um, persona. And I think that's the way he, he really thinks he just happens to live in uh, the San Francisco Bay Area, and, and, and politically, we need more more people like him in the state. But I'm a huge believer. I think in this quest that everybody should go to college and go to college right away, and then all the pressures that go with that, we've 
we've we're starving, particularly in public schools, kids have the opportunity to take what in my day you would call shop class. Yes. Today is a skilled trades track. And you think about this. A lot of it has to do with parents can be really kind of bad about this, that let's say you have two college educated parents and you live in an upper, you know, aspirational middle class neighborhood or upper middle class neighborhood where everybody else is a college grad and and everybody's bragging about their kids getting 4.2s and getting into Georgetown or Penn or Cal Berkeley or Stanford or places like that. And, uh, and, and so it just, it creates this kind of societal pressure that that's, that's the way you seek societal improvement in your society. And one of my old college roommates is a clinical psychologist in Pasadena, and he sees family, families come into families under duress or otherwise they wouldn't knock on his door. And often it's a troubled teen and often it's a male troubled teen. And more, uh, more than once, teen isn't really troubled. It's just that the teen has interests that, that don't look like they're going to get the kid into, into the University of Southern California. You know, they like cars, they like tuning cars, they like fixing cars. And when my old roommate, the clinical psychologist, gently suggests, well, you know, maybe young Johnny shouldn't try to go to college right away. Maybe he loves cars. Maybe he should get a job at a Lexus service center or something like that. And, and by the way, they, that pays pretty well. And by the way, this isn't a forever thing. One of two things may happen. Number one, they may decide at age 26 that yes, they do want to go to college, except now they know why they want to go to college and they'll be focused. And you're not shoving them into something they're not ready for. They'll, they want to go. They know what they'll do. They have motivation. They're going to get through and do a great job. Or they may decide, hey, you know, this is really cool here. I'm now inspired to go out and build a bunch of car, you know, become a car repair shop entrepreneur. Or you know, instead of being a plumber, I'm going to build a plumbing firm. You know, I like to tell, I like to tell people that my wife and I vacation um, in the same place every, the week after Christmas, between Christmas and New Year's, down in the Indian Wells part of Southern California, that's the desert by Palm Springs. And we always rent a townhouse in this beautiful complex. And the owner of the townhouse is a plumber. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and, but, but he, and his main, his, he lives in Newport Beach, California. And you go, he's a plumber. How does he live in Newport Beach, California, and have rental properties all over the place? It's because he has a plumbing firm and a successful plumbing firm. And did he go to college? No, he never went to college. He knew what he wanted to do, and he made an entrepreneurial success out of it. And that's a path. It's a great path um, for, for a lot of people. It, it absolutely is. And, I, you know, we don't have time on this show today to talk about the solutions. But one thing I'm constantly thinking about is, you know, is it the parents? Is it the institutions? You know, there's a lot of a lot of different places to point the fingers. I just hope at some point that it, that it takes a different path. And, and that's why I like bringing up this conversation. Well, Rich, look, question. Well, I, think, I, you know, I, I, think, I think people in your part of the world are more sensible about that than people who live on the coast. To be quite frank, uh, I think that the coastal people are driving themselves nuts. There was at, at 
you know, Palo Alto. Uh, Palo Alto is, is, is where Stanford is. Um, Stanford is, is actually its own incorporated municipality, but it's in Palo Alto. And Palo Alto in the 2014-2015 school year had six student suicides and more than 50 hospitalizations for kids who were contemplating suicides. And they were all kids. These weren't drug addicted kids. These weren't, you know, kids with a lifelong clinical depression, not most of them anyway. They were normal kids who felt ashamed because they were only B plus students in an area where they, if they weren't straight A's, they felt less than. But when I go to back to my home state of North Dakota, I see much more common sense or uh, Oklahoma. I think that's because there are more industries like that, like um, oil and gas and, yep. and transportation and composite manufacturing and industries where, you know, if you went to, uh, if you were the, the B student at Oklahoma State or North Dakota State, and you, you're never a superstar, but you're, you're one of these people that continually gets better and you know what you want to do. And then you get out into the real world, you see the real real world, you know, there are plenty of opportunities for you. And so I think, you know, I think when you do get into the heartland, there maybe isn't as much societal pressure to go to an Ivy League school and take on, you know, $300,000 worth of debt, which, which I think would drive the, you know, the, 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 the heartlander looking at people families like that on the coast would go, what do you, well, that makes no sense at all. Yeah, and of course, no the, heartlanders, the heartlanders are right about that. And it's a good point. It's, it's a good point. You know, I'm always thought, I've always stuck with the saying, I think it was Jim Rohn or somebody that said the formal education makes you a living, right? But it's really the education after that, that makes the difference. And I think a lot of, a lot of us in the, in the Midwest uh, just have a different view of that. But uh, I, look, I really appreciate it. This is, I would tell anybody listening today needs to grab a copy of this book, Late Bloomers. Um, it's an excellent book that Rich has put out. You can listen to it on Amazon, or I think you can listen to it actually, can't you, Rich? There's a there's an audio version of it, um, or grab a yeah, copy. Yeah, yeah, now. yeah, done by somebody with a really good voice. I'm impressed. <laughs> it, it, was, it wasn't me, you know, I mean, I haven't lived in North Dakota for 40 years, but if you come from North Dakota, you know, you always talk a little bit like that, even, you know, even more than you think you do. Although people think I'm, when people try to tag my language now, uh, my accent, um, they know it isn't California. They know it's not anywhere in the East. And it sounds to them like I might be more from Nebraska or Kansas, I guess, because as I've lived in California, I've developed some kind of a funny hybrid thing. But when I go back um, to North Dakota, as I was last week in Fargo, speaking to the Fargo-Moorhead Chamber of Commerce, or I'm in Minneapolis quite a bit because my sister lives there and my mom lives there. Um, then, you, then you get into, uh, oh, hey, Rich, is it cold enough for you? you know? <laughs> well, and to all my and family. You know, what the answer, yeah. you know what the answer is, Rick? What's you, that? You say, you say oh, oh, I like it a lot colder. <laughs> <laughs> well, as a native Minnesotan who was fortunate enough to transplant himself in Oklahoma as a kid, I completely understand I've, all my family up there. Um, it, it's fun time. Well, Rich, this has been really good. Um, you know, I, I hope that, um, I hope this maybe sparks somebody to think not only as an over 50 entrepreneur, you know, that, Hey, it's not too late, no matter where we are. Um, or a little bit about, you know, the pressure that we're putting on these kids. Um, I just really 
worry about it. So I think you've done a great job. If people want to, obviously, if they check out the book, go to Amazon. But if they want to learn more about what you're doing over at Forbes or any of the other work that you do, how, how do they find more out about Rich? Um, you can go to richcarlgard.com. Um, you'll, you'll see a cover of Late Bloomers, and you can click on that, and that'll take you to the separate book website. I would say to anybody that um, in September, the book is coming out as a paperback, so it'll cost less money, and every chapter will have a study guide. So, for example, in one of my later chapters in the book, as you know, it's on self-doubt and how do we deal with self-doubt because if, if all of us have self-doubt. Every person in the world has self-doubt, but, but people who consider themselves late bloomers or, or who are stuck in a non-blooming place, Sometimes their self-doubt can become a real hurdle that's hard to get over. So how do we deal with it in a way that we can deal with it beyond just sort of pumping ourselves up to try to get through our self-doubt in the next hour? Because we need a strategy that, can, that we can effectively deal with self-doubt for the remainder of our lives and, and, and per- proceed and proceed with confidence despite the fact that self-doubt will always be with us. Absolutely. Well, I think I'll probably grab a copy of that when it comes out as well. It sounds like you've you've done continue to do some good work. So, guys, you can check out uh, Rich's information at his website or check out our our show notes at www.epicsbiz.com forward slash podcasts, where we'll have his show notes, other podcasts, and other resources on our website that you can check out. Until next time, I appreciate you listening. And remember, we're only getting started. The Over 50 Entrepreneur Podcast is sponsored by Epic Business Advisory, where we help entrepreneurs escape the owner's trap, build businesses that can succeed without you, allowing you the opportunity to realize more freedom, think bigger, and pursue next-level goals. Download our freedom formula at epicsbiz.com slash formula. And remember, we're only getting started.